Let me give you a couple of places to turn this morning in preparation. The first one is, I don't ever remember asking you guys to turn here, uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, if you'll go just there to the edge between the Old and the New Testament, you'll get just through the minor prophets and you'll run into the first major one, Daniel. Find something and mark that there. And then go all the way back to the right, almost to the end, and find First Peter. Mark something. And if the Lord wills, there'll be several places this morning, but uh, at least a few of these we can get to a little quicker. First Peter 3, and then on your way back toward Romans, stop off at Titus 3, and then find yourself in Romans 13. Appreciate the prayers of my church family and just uh, ask that you continue in prayer for the family. Um, I would imagine the next few days are going to be difficult. Um, but the Lord has been exceedingly gracious. I have not known Him. Like I am knowing him now. I'm very thankful. Very thankful. Also thankful for where we are this morning. I don't know that I'll ever tell you why I'm thankful for that, but I do understand it, I think. Um, but let me say this, that it is, Romans chapter 12 is very timely for us. Um, a couple of you made mention of that. Just understanding what genuine love looks like and then walking right into Thanksgiving with all your family there. Uh, you really get to put that to practice and we'll walk right into Christmas holidays and you've been prepared. I don't know how you'll act when you get around all your cousins and all your families, believers and unbelievers and Republicans and Democrats and all that bunch. I don't know how you'll act, but you've been prepared You've been taught from the Word of God, so hopefully you'll humble yourself and remember Romans 12. And I would encourage you uh, to don't lay that one aside. Go back through that one often, especially when you're about to engage uh, those who do not hold firmly to the teachings of Christ and the truth in His Word. And that will prepare you. But I think, I'm convinced actually, that Romans 13 is equally timely in our lives uh, for a couple of different reasons, just what we're going through now, uh, how the church is trying to sort its way through dealing with uh, the most immoral leadership that we've ever had. And we're trying to find our way through that and glorify God. And then also, if you'll remember, next year we walk into uh, all of our least favorite uh, time that comes around every four years, and that's an election year. It's absolutely miserable for all of us who love the Lord Jesus. And so these passages will help us prepare for that. I don't imagine I'll get through this today. The Lord may make me get through this today because I really had to go through the process of setting joy aside and letting truth speak, getting all of me out and trying to fill myself up with all of Him. 
so there's a lot here for us that I think will help prepare for, for especially the year ahead. And as far as controversy goes, you know, I think Romans 9, 10, and 11, when you talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, you know, that's probably the most controversial place other than Ephesians 1, perhaps, that you're going to find in the New Testament when you start talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. But you need to know we're probably in the second most controversial place that you'll find in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 13, verse 1, where it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, has caused many of a dispute and division within the church as to the meaning of that. In fact, I opened up one commentary and he listed 12 reasons, not he himself, he was just listing 12 reasons that have been given, the most popular 12, to reasons why we do not have to obey Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, and the first one that they all go to, I was talking to Nathan about this, is number one, Paul didn't write that. Because they know that if they can dismantle apostolic authority, then you can completely ignore that idea altogether. And so from there, it just kind of balloons out into all these particular crazy ideas of why we can completely set aside Romans 13.1. It no longer applies to us. In fact, I found one guy online. He thought he could undo it in the Greek, but he couldn't even explain it in the English as to why we don't have to do Romans 13.1. So if you go off to Greek and you don't understand the English, it's really not going to help you at all. But I think this is really going to teach us something because, you know, these verses started out with do not be conformed to the way that the world thinks. And when you get into this, you're going to see traces and threads as to how you've already been conformed to the way that the world thinks. And so I think as we walk through this, this is going to be a really good exercise in us realizing, you know, there's a lot more work to do in my heart, even when it comes to government and authorities and, and politics and parties and all these things. There's some truths here that I've got to place and I've got to undo the damage that's already been done because of the things that have been fed to me. I know I've sent you all over the place, but we're really close. So, you know, don't lose Romans 13, but I do want you to back up just to the book just before to Acts 4. And I'll show you a passage that many use as just a blanket statement to get out of obedience to these passages that we're about to walk through. If you'll turn back to Acts chapter 4, I want you to notice verse 16. You'll remember the incident. Peter and John were going up to the temple, and there was a man lying at the temple who had been born lame. And so Peter approaches him, and he, he tells him, you know, Silver, bud, I don't have any, but I will give you what I do have in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And the old boy stood up. And when he stood up, you can imagine a great crowd gathered because everybody knew the man. Everybody walked past the man all the time. He was a very well-known guy. You get the picture. And when he stood up and began to walk and jump and praise the Lord, well, the masses came running to see what was taking place. And, of course, Peter now, being filled with the Spirit, understood why it's a great opportunity to share the gospel right now, right here. And so he begins to lay out the gospel to the crowds, and he finds himself arrested by the religious leaders very quickly and taken to prison. So that's kind of the context of what's going on. But if you'll notice verse 16, the religious leaders ask the question, what shall we do with these men? 
For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny that. But, verse 17, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name implied Jesus. So they summoned Peter and John back in and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And so what a lot of people do professing to be Christians is they take that passage, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, and they kind of blanket that over their whole lives, and they kind of go about that way. I completely ignore the government. I completely ignore the authorities. I completely ignore the laws of the land. I live by the law of God. He's my authority, and I don't have to do anything that you say. And that's how they live. And so what they wind up doing in the name of God, they disobey God. Now, who does that sound like? Sounds just like Pharisees, Sadducees, and all the other religious rulers who in the name of God disobeyed God. So we certainly don't want to be among that crowd. And so, and I've told you this before, anytime you read a passage like that in Acts 4, and then you run to Romans 13, where it tells us very clearly to submit to governing authorities, you're like, Okay, wait a minute. I need to be careful here and keep these truths in balance because the moment that you get one of them out of balance, you don't understand either passage. We have to walk in such a way as to be consistent with every period in this book. Every word, every phrase, every verse. We have to live in a way that we keep both truths in balance and walk in obedience to those things. So as you're walking back to Romans 13, we, we need discernment. You need to walk carefully through these things and realize, and I'll, I'll try to, probably not this week, but I'll try to point out so many false teachings regarding this issue that's been brought into the church. And here's the problem. It speaks to your flesh. And because it speaks to your flesh, you really want to listen. Okay? So we really got to be careful here. Now, when you go back to Romans 13, 1, Paul is very emphatic, very particular, very precise in the way that he communicates this. It comes out in the English, every person, but literally he says every soul. He really wants us to see that nobody, there's not anybody that's free from what I'm about to say. There is no person, there is no uh, position. There is no matter if you're poor, or if you're wealthy, or if you're this, or if you're that, or whatever you are, you're not free from the command that I'm about to give you. And so I translated every single solitary soul needs to hear exactly what Paul is going to say. And if you'll notice that word subjection, it's the word that we find all throughout the New Testament, hupotasso, and it means to arrange yourself up under. It's a military term. You are to arrange yourself up under the leadership, however that is, in the military. If it's a general, you arrange yourself very precisely in a peculiar way 
up under his leadership, not turning to the right or to the left, and you listen to every single command. That, that's the, where the word comes from. And so he tells us, and he even tells us this, we don't have the middle voice in the English, but he even tells us there in the middle voice, you do this yourself to yourself. In other words, you don't wait till they subject you. You don't run around here saying, you know, I, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to obey God until they make you obey. They're not to subject you, you're to subject yourself. You're to put yourself up under the governing authority. So there's just a lot here that Paul's very careful in his statement. It's a clear command from Scripture. So here's the question that we've got to begin to ask. If you've not already asked yourself, does God mean all governing bodies and entities and governments and leaderships? Does He mean all? Because this is a very strict command that it seems to be that we've got a lot of questions. Now, I'll tell you this, um, this church has, has been very faithful to understand and begin to apply the sovereignty of God. And let me just pause and to walk into my situation right now. You need it for every part of life. Sitting beside my mother's bed yesterday and praying over her as the family was there, that is the warmest blanket that I had about me was trusting in the sovereignty of my God. Absolutely comfortable in His will, in His way, not doing anything weird or bizarre, trying to speak the name of Jesus to bring about healing, just being comfortable with my God and knowing that He is in control. You need that, and I'm convinced that most of you are well on your way with that, but you need it for every single area of life. And I'm imagining when I get to my days of my last breath, it will be the thing that brings me comfort to know without question that God is sovereign even over my breathing in and my breathing out. But as we come to this passage, it's the same thing. You need to understand very clearly that it is the sovereignty of God that's the principle at work here. In fact, if you'll notice the second part of verse 1, it's the very first reason that Paul bases the command on. Notice with me, every single soul is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for, what does he say? There is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Now, there is a statement that catches every single situation and circumstance. We asked the question in the first part of the verse, well, he doesn't use every, so every single person, yes, but are we to be in subjection to every single governing authority? So that's the question I'm going to hang over this. But you get into the second part of that verse, and you do have an all-inclusive statement, for there has never been any authority, any government, any ruler, any king that has not been established by God. God. In fact, the word established is in the perfect tense. It stands in the state of having been established by God. So He is absolutely sovereign over everything. And so now all the questions begin to pop into place. Did God establish Hitler? You think about these things. Your mind starts to spin a little bit. Did God establish 
Stalin. Did God establish the ruler over North Korea right now? How about Putin? How about Biden? Really? Did God establish these men in their places of authority? Did God really establish democracy? You know, there's a lot of Christians that feel like God is the one that established democracy, but he didn't have anything to do with communism. And while you're asking those questions, you need to go back into the Old Testament and ask yourself some questions like, did God establish Assyria and its leadership, the ones who took down the Lord's people and all the northern tribes of Israel? Did God establish Assyria? Did God establish Babylon and its king to come down and burn Jerusalem and the temple to the ground? Of course, if you study your Bible, you go, yeah, he, he made them. He gave them their kings. In fact, there are passages in the Bible and the prophets where it refers to he whistled for them when he got ready. He built them up. He gave them their authority. He put people in positions of power. And at just the precise time when God needed them, he whistled for them and they came running to do the will of God. And while you're thinking about those Old Testament passages, let me bring in the New Testament passage. Who was ruler of the land when Paul wrote these words? Nero. Now, some, you know, if you don't want to believe Romans 13, 1, some begin immediately to make excuses. Well, Nero hadn't gone crazy yet. He wasn't burning Christians when Paul wrote this. He obviously would have changed his mind once he began, which means God would have misspoken because if God would have waited to see how Nero was going to act, then God would have never wrote down Romans 13, 1. Now, so we don't believe that at all, right? So we need to understand that there are situations and circumstances within governments and with authorities that we don't fully understand, but you have to understand the principle at hand in, in Romans verse 1 where he says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. It's even in a present tense. God has made it this way. Now, let's continue along the track, and let me help you sort this out in your own brain, because I, you, you're going to need to be able to think in the days ahead, and you're going to have to rely upon the Word of God to do your thinking. So we come to this thought, and we ask this question, did God create all things? See how important this is? Because if you don't think He created all things, immediately you've been cast over into utter chaos... Because now all of a sudden it seems as though God has lost control when Hitler took the reins, when Stalin took the reins, and so on and so forth. But we don't believe that. We believe He's fully in control. So therefore, when we walk back to Genesis 1 and remember that God created all things, immediately we settle down and we begin walking through the pages of Scripture to understand any truth. Not only did He create all things, He ordered them and arranged all of them even the functioning within them. For instance, does the sun run its course faithfully without fail? Does the moon walk through its phases? Oh, so much so that we built our calendar around it and the calendar never fails. Do the seasons come and go without question? What about the stars when you begin to consider the arrangement and order that God created within the stars? I mean, you can circumnavigate the globe without your cell phone 
if you know how to read the stars. You can literally hop in a boat and go to any pinpoint on the map on the other side of the earth simply using the constellations in the heaven because God not only created them, He ordered them and arranged them in order for us to be able to use them. So God created everything. He ordered and arranged everything. He even created the relationships that exist among those things. For instance, who created marriage? God did. You can understand that from the very first few pages of Scripture. Did God arrange and order that relationship? He certainly did. Did God create the family? Without question. Did God order and arrange the family in a particular way? Yes. What about other relationships within culture? Did God create those as well? Yes. Did He order them and arrange them in a particular way? Yes. Go with me to Colossians 3. Go to the right, just a few pages. Again, I couldn't give you all these, but I'm wanting us to use our brains this morning as we walk through this. Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to find yourself at verse 18. We find the first relationship within this created order of God, and it begins in verse 18 with wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's the exact same word that you find in Romans 13.1. Wives, arrange yourself up under your husband. Now in the order of this, Paul even writes with order because he always addresses the one, if you will, for lack of a better term, the lower rung of the ladder, and then he addresses immediately the one up on the higher rung of the ladder. So therefore, husbands, verse 19, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Second relationship, children, lower, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Up one step, verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. He keeps going, lower. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 one step up, masters grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Now, if we had time, I'd take you over to 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says, submit to your elders. Even within the context of the church, God has ordered it, He has arranged it, and He has given places of authority within it. Now, I do want you to notice one verse, because I want you to carry this away before we go back to Romans 13. If you'll notice... The very last part of verse 24, just before verse 25, it gives a summary of all these relationships and how we're supposed to interact. And it simply says this, It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. In other words, you can take that principle, walk all the way back up to the passage, and when you read, Wives submit to your husbands, in reality, that means wives serve the Lord. When the command is given to the husband, husbands, love your wives, 
It can literally be translated, husbands, serve the Lord. Children, serve the Lord. Servants or slaves, serve the Lord. And so as we walk through these verses and obey the Lord, He says, what you're doing is, when you're submitting to my commands, you are serving the Lord. So again, we've got to ask questions, right? Well, what if my husband's a jerk? What if he doesn't follow the ways of the Lord? What if dad exasperates the children? Are the children supposed to obey? What if the master beats the slave? Does the slave have to obey? See, you begin to follow all these questions, but all I need you to do right now is to hang on to the principle. It is the Lord whom you serve. That's a part of the transformed thinking that needs to take place in your mind. Because what we do in our conformed minds is we can't see past what's right in front of us. And so we react and we respond to the one that's in front of us, to the circumstance, to the situation, and we don't take time to lean a little to the right or get up on our tiptoes and see over the circumstance and situation, the perspective, and go, wait a minute, there's the Lord just beyond here. And I am reminded that I am called to serve the Lord. In fact, if you go back to Romans 13 now, you'll find to disobey 13.1 is not really disobeying governments and authorities at all. What you're doing is disobeying the Lord. So go back to Romans 13 and notice with me in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance or the decree of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, if you want to know what the word condemnation means, there's a lot of debate there, but it goes back up to God and it doesn't go forward just to the governments. A lot of people don't like that. It's actually the word judgment. And so they want to make it fit into the king judging you for disobeying you. But that's not where it fits in the grammar. It goes back up to God. In other words, if you stand in opposition to the commands of God, don't be surprised to find yourself under the judgment of God. But when you disobey Romans 13.1, you can give it any kind of excuse you want, but the person that you're disobeying is God who established the authority. So when we see ourselves walking through Colossians 3, wives, you're not really submitting yourself to your husband, you're submitting yourselves to Christ. Children, listen to me for one second if you can. When you submit to your parents, you are actually submitting yourself to Christ. Not just mom and dad. And when slaves submitted themselves, humbled themselves, and did what their master commanded, it was, we will find out in another passage, well-pleasing to the Lord because they understood that they were submitting themselves to God. And we find this in Romans 13.1. He goes on to say, whoever resists authority is actually opposing who? God. Which makes it a very serious matter altogether. Now, if you think this hits us squarely on the chin, you're forgetting about a Jew. They despise Gentiles. And it took a lot of work on the Apostle Paul and a tremendous amount of grace of God for them to get over that. But when this is written, the Jews found themselves being ruled 
by Gentile heathen Romans who were absolutely disgusting to them. Wanted nothing to do with them. And so you and I look at our immoral form of government and we are not taking into consideration the immorality that took place in Rome and we're not considering the perspective of the Jew who had once been led by God. God was their king and ruler. But remember, they didn't want that. They wanted an earthly king. And so God gave them a line of earthly men. But they always had their own form of government until Assyria and Babylon walked in. Now they were subjected to the rulership and the reign and the authority of heathen Gentiles. And it had been that way. And they continued to find themselves in this way when Paul wrote these words. You think it smacks us. You're forgetting how hard it smacked them. This is a hard pill for them to swallow. But I want us to notice on and go on in the past is that governments and the individuals in those places of authority have been designed by God. In fact, it uses this word, they're ministers of God. Notice with me in verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Now he's speaking about the king. Do what is good and you will have praise from that king. Verse 4. For it, in reference to the government and the king, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, you ought to be terrified, be afraid. For it, the government, the authority, the ruler, the king, does not bear the sword for nothing. He comes back to it again. For it, that ruler, that king, that government, that authority is a minister of God. He is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary for you to be in subjection, not just because of wrath, but just because of the sake of your conscience. So in other words, he lays out a couple of reasons that he bases 13.1 on the command. And the first reason is God's sovereign. Who do you think established this? Obey. Reason number two that also comes from heaven, you ought to be afraid of the judgment of God. Steve gives an analogy or an illustration when he walks through Romans 13. It's just one of those that sticks in your mind forever and ever. And he said, elderly man, a friend of his, godly man, was in a car with a younger man. They're going down the road. And the younger man pulls up, does a U-turn, heads back the other way, right in front of a no-U-turn sign. And the older godly man looks at him and says, what are you doing? To which the younger man responded, you're not afraid of a piece of metal, are you? And the older man said, no, but I am absolutely terrified of God. It takes maturity for you to have that kind of attitude toward the Lord. And be absolutely terrified of heart to disobey God. So Paul gives us a couple of earth, or heavenly reasons. Number one, God ordained it. Number two, you ought to be terrified to disobey it. Then he gives us a couple of earthly reasons. You do realize I put the authority in position to punish those who break rules and laws and positions of authority. So if you don't want to worry about him, if you'll just do what's right, you don't have to worry about him. But if you're going around, going around doing what's wrong, you ought to be worried about him because I put himself in that position of authority. 
And then he uses the most fascinating word. He refers to him as a minister of the Lord. Now, I know you'll remember, we just walked through some crazy times in the last few years, and I'll use Portland, Oregon as an instance, where they completely did away with the police force. That's what depraved, if, if you could go there today, you would find an absolute wasteland. In fact, if you continue to watch the news, you watch what businesses continue to pull out of that area because they don't even punish shoplifters anymore. They just let them do what they want to do up to a certain amount. And there's been story after store, store after store closed. Even large stores have pulled out of that area. We can't live without authority. If you think it would be good to walk into North Korea and lay waste to the government and the leadership, you're naive because we can't live without authority. How do you think the depraved people would respond? Fall down and begin to do right and worship the Lord in all things and obey Him? No, not at all. They would loot and they would rob and they would steal and they would look out for themselves and they would kill one another. That's how we act without authority. You can't go in and lay waste to governments just because governments are wicked. You can't go in and kill kings and those in positions of authority just because they're wicked because if you want to see wicked, turn people loose and go read Romans 1 and you'll know exactly how it's going to turn out. Or you can just let your kids run wild for one day and not say anything to them. And you'll see exactly how it goes when there's not those who are positioned in authority, whether they are, follow the Lord or not. It does not matter where you're dealing with depraved, lost, and wicked people. It's exactly what they do. They are ministers of the Lord. I wonder where all these churches that were placating to culture, I wonder if any of them thought to preach about police officers being ministers of the Lord. You do realize they are. And as wicked and as immoral as our government is, there is in a sense a way in which they still accomplish the will of God because of their position. And therefore, in a sense, don't misquote me, they're still a minister of the Lord because they still function in a way in the design of God. Now, Paul wants to give us an example. So look at the example. It couldn't be a more painful example. Look in verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes... For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In other words, that tells you right there, we've been whining about taxes since the beginning of government. That's always been the deal. It's always been the thing that we whined about. But this is not just about taxes, but he brings up taxes because we, he knows where we are with that thing. And he's like, no, pay the tax. Because they command you to pay the tax. It's due them, pay them. So we still got to answer this question, what then will we do if governments and leaders become wicked? Now, before I walk through this and begin to look at them, I want us to look at ourselves for just a moment 
And you should always do that before you point the finger. You better examine your own heart. So let's consider our own sinfulness. Has there ever been a time where we rebelled against authority? When was the first time? Genesis chapter what? Three. And whose authority did we rebel against? Was it a king? Was it a president? No, it was God. So when we begin to consider our own sinfulness, you do realize that Romans 13:1 strikes at the very bullseye of what is wrong with us to begin with. And that's why you can open up a commentary or turn on any random preacher you want and he'll be preaching against you keeping Romans 13, 1, and you want to hear it, and you want him to explain it in such a way that makes you comfortable with your disobedience. That's how we work. So what I'm telling you, as you study through this principle, don't trust yourself. This is, lies at the heart of what's wrong with you. This lies at what's at the heart of wrong with me. We hate authority. We want to be autonomous. I cringe every time you get to talking about Southern Baptists and talk about all of our churches are autonomous. I'm like, okay, you do realize that's not good. And then here come the arguments of why it's good. We want to be self-ruled. We want to be self-governed. In fact, within the autonomous churches, we even have independent Baptist churches who didn't want what was not even really leadership from the convention. They went an extra level to be autonomous. But we've got to realize this is who we are. Don't tell me what to do. Who are you? I'm sorry. It sounded like you just demanded something of me and I don't know that you hold the position to do so. Do you not realize who I am? I'm probably quoting one of y'all's kids right now, right? That's who we are from birth. And so when we study these passages, you have to realize very carefully that I'm probably wrong on this issue and I need to let the Word of God speak. So again, let me read Romans 13, 1, and then we're going to go to a couple of different places back in Daniel. And I'm going to pick up the pace because I know I need to land this. Notice verse 1 again. Let me repeat this. Here's the principle that Paul lays out every soul is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So you need to know that Paul's not making a new statement there at all. Go back with me to Daniel chapter 2. And I really hope you mark Daniel because we're going to touch on Daniel here. Then we're going to go back to it at the very end. I'm back there myself so I can give you some context. So in Daniel chapter 2. You'll notice if you have subtitles over chapter 2, the king's forgotten dream. 
And so the king commands all of his um, smart guys, I guess, to come in and interpret his dream. But do you remember the stipulation? You got to tell me the dream first, and then I'll let you interpret it for me. Of course, all the wise men said, you've absolutely lost your mind. There's nobody that can tell you the dream that you had without you telling them, then turn around and interpret it for you. Well, there was a guy. God had worked in the heart of Daniel in such a way as to be that particular guy. And so Daniel prays that he might have opportunity or ask for the opportunity to pray to the Lord and seek wisdom from the Lord, and the Lord grants it to them. But if you'll notice in verse 20, Daniel blessed the Lord of heaven after God gave him the wisdom of knowing the dream and the interpretation. But I want you to notice in Daniel's prayer what he says. Notice verse, well, let me just start in verse 20. Daniel said, Let the name of the God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. And he says that, by the way, in the context of a very wicked king. So in the midst of his prayer, Daniel tells God and God alone, you're the God who establishes and removes kings. And I know this. Now turn over to verse 37 and notice as Daniel begins to speak to the king. Verse 36, Daniel 2 verse 36, this was the dream. He's talking to the king. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. God has given the power. God has given the strength. And God has given the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, He has given them into your hand and caused you notice that, to rule over them all. So not only does Daniel recognize this and make mention of it to the Lord in his prayer, he turns around and tells him the king. And probably the king, being not a believer, is too dumb to notice. But Daniel just told him where he got his rule, where he got his authority, where he got the crown on his head, and why everybody in the kingdom submits to him. And he's a wicked king. But he tells him very clearly, this is why you are where you are. And he didn't go on to say, you probably think it's because of you, but it has nothing to do with you. This is what God himself has done. There's another time, again, hang on to Daniel, put something there. Uh, but run with me to Mark chapter 12. You'll remember this instance as well. Mark chapter 12. Actually, y'all, this is that moment where I wish I had more time this week. I don't think that's where I want to go. Let me... Um, thank you, Lord. John 19. That's where I want to go. I'm not ready for Mark 12 yet. Go to John 19. If you'll notice John 19, Jesus is being questioned. I want you to notice down in verse 8. John 19, verse 8. 
Actually, seven. Let's start there. John 19, seven. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law, he, Jesus, ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Notice verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You don't speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And of course you remember the reply of Jesus in verse 11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So what do you think about Herod? Is he an okay guy? Godly leader? No, he's the guy that's going to command the Lord Jesus to be put to death. How did Jesus see his position of authority? Well, when Herod speaks out and says, Well, you know, if you would speak to me, I have the authority to release you. And the Son of God looks at me and says, You have the authority because I've given you the authority. That's what you have. You see, this has always been the case from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Authority is established by God. This is God-designed way. Okay? Now, let's get into some of the apostolic teaching. A few more passages and we're done. And go with me to 1 Peter. Go all the way toward the end and, and come back up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because, to be honest with you, I like Peter's teaching on this better than Paul's. He was a fisherman. I guess the intelligence of a fisherman works for me better than the intelligence of one of the most smart men that have ever been born, the Apostle Paul. But notice what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governments or governors rather as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's keep going. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but be submissive servants to masters who are unreasonable. For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You see, at the heart of it, God's like obey. That's my primary concern. What your concern is, justice. And therefore, if they are unjust, I don't have to obey. If that is unreasonable... I don't have to obey. If your husband doesn't love the Lord, 
I don't have to submit. You need to understand. You've left Scripture at that point, And you're out on your own. What's going on is you've been looking for a reason to be self-governed and autonomous and you think you've found it and you want to run with it, but you haven't found anything. God's still more interested in your humility and your obedience rather than happiness in your life. Are you telling me there's absolutely no instance in where we shouldn't dis or where we should disobey. Of course there are, and you know what they are. I could take you back to Acts chapter 4. When it comes to glorifying Christ, you have to glorify Christ. When it comes to worship, you have to worship. But when it comes to obeying the king, you obey that king until it begins to change your worship. You know, this happened a couple of years, didn't it? Just a couple of years ago. Didn't really happen in our state at all, but we saw it happening in other states where they commanded by law that you couldn't meet and worship the Lord in the midst of COVID. That's the first time in my life that I ever remember being affected and having that line between government and God. A lot of people say it's been going on everywhere, not for us. Not really. But that's the one time in my life where I disobeyed government and obeyed God. There are those moments where we don't do, if you will, Romans 13, 1. And those moments are only when government affects our faithfulness, our worship, and our service to our Creator and that's the only reason that we can ever do this. I want to show you this in the life of one faithful believer and we'll be done. Go back to Daniel chapter 6. And it was just by God's grace that I came across this. Because this has been such a frantic week. I want you to go back to Daniel chapter 6. Of course, you remember what happens in Daniel chapter 3. That's a great example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that story. Nebuchadnezzar, the same king who Daniel interpreted that dream for, tried to make everyone in the whole kingdom bow down and worship him. Of course, you remember Daniel, Shadrach, or Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego is like, I'm sorry. Let's look at that one verse, if you will. Turn over to um, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3. Look at verse 17. You see it here, but I want you to see it in Daniel 6, and then we'll pray and be done. Daniel 3, verse 16. Let's start there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. And that matter was that they needed to bow down and worship him. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But even if He doesn't, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here's one instance, but what about every other instance? Were these guys and Daniel supposed to back away from this king, declare him to be an idiot that they owe nothing to, 
Because he's actually tried to get us to worship him. So would the church have been justified in that day to hold that position, like so many in the church today try to hold that position against our authorities and our governments? Would it have been okay for them to do that? Look at Daniel chapter 6, and I'll answer that question for you. And you'll notice Nebuchadnezzar's son, chapter 6, verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one of the top three, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself even among the three because he, he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. We're about to go from the top three to one. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find grounds of accusation against Daniel in regard to the government's affairs. Notice, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. No negligence, no corruption was to be found in him. And then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. In other words, it didn't matter where you look, Daniel dotted every I and crossed every T. He obeyed every law. He was submissive to that wicked king in every single solitary way. But one. And he was going to pray to his God faithfully three times a day. It didn't matter what kind of law that they passed. He would be in the same place doing the same thing that he did every day. He was going to worship his God. And as far as everything else goes, you couldn't say one thing about the man. Because he understood that God established kingdoms and rulers and authorities and governments and powers of position. And that wicked king said, you know, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. He's not negligent at one point. I have to do something about his God. Now, I'd love if we had time to go on and talk about all the false teaching and bad teaching that's taking place in the church today. And I'll tell you, the only reason it's taking place is because that one little thing within you that set off everything wrong about you is this desire to be your own God, your own ruler, and your own king over your life. If, if we could peel away every single solitary layer of all your sin, we would come down to that last little kernel. I want to be autonomous. And so when we read Romans 13, 1, and we begin to listen to all the crazy teaching going on in the church today, they're teaching from the point of their flesh and not from the point of truth. It's going to be difficult in the days ahead. But just like you have no reason in Romans 12 not to love, you've got no reason in Romans 13 not to honor what God has established. Does that mean you're going to be about the only one around honoring the king? Probably. Daniel was. 
Might have been three others. Don't know where they were at this time. But he was about the only one that still worshipped God that the king thought, man, this guy gets everything right. That's the kind of people we're called to be. We're supposed to love in every circumstance. And when the godless world looks at us, we ought to be doing so much good that they're absolutely ashamed to say anything negative about us. I just can't find any reason to criticize that guy. The only thing, he worships that God faithfully, and I don't get that. But everything else, man, that's who we've called to be. And by God's grace, that's who we can be because Christ dwells within us. Let's pray.